This week, we welcome Patrick O'Reilly, co-founder and chief product officer from CyberSaint, to discuss how to align cyber risk to business risk through automation. In the leadership and communication section, how much does a CEO or business leader need to know about cybersecurity? How businesses can drive innovation while delivering operational excellence? Six resume mistakes CISOs still make and more. Business Security Weekly starts now. This is Security Weekly for security professionals by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where we explore the business of security to improve the security of business. Your trusted source for actionable insights on leadership, communication, and innovation. Get ready for Business Security Weekly. Stopping advanced threats requires knowing exactly what you're up against. ExtraHop Reveal X is the only solution that shows you not just where intruders are going, but where they've been. 90-day look back and complete network visibility across the data center, cloud, and device edge help security teams respond 84% faster with ExtraHop Reveal X network detection and response. Explore the interactive demo at securityweekly.com forward slash ExtraHop. We're proud to announce CISO Stories, a new podcast series in partnership with Cybersecurity Collaborative and Cyber Reason. CISO Stories features the candid perspectives and experiences of frontline senior security executives and dives deep into timely security topics. CISO Stories is hosted by Todd Fitzgerald, VP of Cybersecurity Strategy at Cybersecurity Collaborative, and Sam Curry, Chief Product and Security Officer at Cyber Reason. Listen weekly as they speak with extraordinary CISOs by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash CSP. Welcome to Business Security Weekly. This is episode number 224, recorded July 19th, 2021. I am your host, Matt Alderman, here in Colorado. Joining me remotely are my co-hosts, first, Mr. Adrian Sanabria. Welcome, Adrian. Hey, Matt. Nice to be here again. Uh, our jobs aren't automated yet, but I'm looking forward to talking about automating compliance work. Yes, that, that's going to be a fun segment. And joining us remotely, filling in for an under-the-weather Jason Albuquerque is Mr. Lee Neely. Welcome, Lee. Oh, good to be here. You know, automating compliance work is something I've been looking at on MySpace in the .gov world, so I'm very interested to see what we can learn today. All right, we're going to get there. First, a couple announcements. Cyber Risk Alliance, in partnership with InfraGuard, has launched the Critical Infrastructure Resilience Benchmark Study. Measure your readiness for ransomware by completing the survey and getting your score. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash CIRB to take the survey. Security Weekly Unlocked will be held in person this December 5th through 8th at the Hilton Lake Buena Vista. Our call for Presentations deadline has been extended through July 23rd at 1159 p.m. Eastern. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash unlock to submit your presentation. This segment is sponsored by CyberSaint. To learn more, please visit securityweekly.com forward slash CyberSaint. Patrick O'Reilly is Chief Product Officer and Co-Founder at CyberSaint, where he leads product innovation and development. His experience as a Harvard-trained economist, IT risk and compliance consultant, and his rapid exposure to cybersecurity led him to seek out CISOs, CIOs, and boards of directors at global organizations to pursue the answer to the question, how can cyber be managed, measured, and understood like any other business function? An expert in artificial intelligence and economic economic modeling, Patrick works with 
members of the Global 500 to research and deploy risk quantification, risk intelligence gathering, and risk reporting communication strategies. Patrick, welcome back to Business Security Weekly. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be back. Now, I love this topic. A, a, a few people know that this was one of my first startups was in the compliance risk management space before GRC was called GRC. Right. I think we understand some of the challenges, but let's start there first. I mean, sure. when you think about cyber risk, you think about regulatory risk, it's a business risk discussion. But one of the challenges in the space is the ability to really roll up cyber risk, regulatory risk to a business risk discussion, that you could have this adequate discussion with executive leaders, the board, about the importance of these two areas. Right. Has that discussion changed any in the last 15 or so years? Well, I, I think it's <clears throat> changed in the last five years. I don't know uh, how much it changed in, in the previous 10 up to that. Although, you know, looking at some of our competitors in this space, I would say that the, the conversation really only got going when some of the good work over at NIST uh, came out with the CSF. And the CSF, I think, gave an opportunity for a lot of the delivery companies, you know, the big four, the integrators, and some of the software companies to begin having a discussion around measurement, you know, so measurement was really hot uh, a couple of years ago, and it was wildly controversial. I remember going to the NIST conference on measurement, and um, it was, I mean, it was a food fight. Um, but what what shook out really uh, were some best practices. And I think we're at now at a crossroads where a lot of boards and C-suites are just more interested, and they're more interested in understanding uh, cyber as a business function and understanding the risk exposure they have. Yeah, and I think one of the challenges here is the volume. Because I, I, I remember this in the early days. Like when I was building Control Path back in, in 2006, 7, 8, I remember you know, talking to Qualys back at the time around, you know, could I, could I model you know, 500,000 assets in, 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 in the software? I mean, scale was very different back then. When you think about the number of controls across a number of systems that then roll up on a regular basis to really influence business risk, right. that's a lot of data, right? And yeah. I think a, a lot of the legacy solutions had an architectural challenge, mine included, by the way. Um, mm -hmm. So a lot of this, I think we needed technology advancements to be able to process that much data, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, and I think that that's it's still the case to a certain extent. Not just technology advancements, but you know, buy-in across the teams. You know, because not every every team that handles the vulnerability information is you know going to be willing to expose some of that to the compliance team, to the risk team, and to the first, second, third lines of defense. So, I mean, it's it's while it's a logical problem and a data problem, uh, I think that the data side of it is much improved. I mean, when we've done integrations into, uh, you know, scanning uh, concerns, uh, we, don't, we don't have a great deal of difficulty there. You know, we go into the API and we can pull vast amounts of data. And as long as we, you know, have, uh, as long as we know what we're looking for inside that data, we can be pretty specific about walking it into controls. Yeah. And, and, and this is where I think the, the NIST cybersecurity framework and other frameworks, look, there's other frameworks out there than the NIST CSF. ISO has been a, a framework that's been out there for a long time. Even some of the COBIT models, some of the older regulatory framework models are still out there. 
Mm-hmm. Is there a preferred model or is it still kind of a combination across these different frameworks? I mean, I think you you see across enterprise companies that they have like uh, 10 frameworks they, they work with. And that, you know, some of that's just frameworks they've been working with for a long time. Uh, and then some of it is also the requirements that are getting pushed at them from, you know, other parties. So sometimes... If you talk to a bank, they might be benchmarked on 853. They might be doing some PCI, some HIPAA, um, you know, it, it, but really what they're, you know, an FFIEC, New York DFS, but really their, their major challenge is how do I report out on, you know, SIS if I haven't benchmarked myself on SIS? So one of the other problems we've been caught up in uh, for years now, and, and now we have live in the product is the crosswalking problem because, some of the solutions around crosswalking have not really s- scaled. You know, the idea that you pay for five crosswalks and then you're done and you can't do any more crosswalks, uh, that's, that's been a, a bit of an issue for security professionals as well. So there's, you know, there's the, the, the workhorse frameworks, you know, like COVID, the SIS controls, um, you know, PCI, HIPAA, 853. We're an 853 and CSF shop, but only at the core of what we do because... Um, you know, when it comes to automation and, and when it comes to crosswalking, it's, it's much better to have a control like AC2, which has 16 line items and is very detailed and can map to multiple other controls in a framework like ISO, you know, 27,000 series is a little bit of a sh- sort of a ISMS, you know, broader pool. So if you're doing all the analytics on the deep pool, you can get to the shallower uh, pools a little bit easier. Right. It, it, I, I was laughing like internally because I remember the the problem statement when I, I when I built Control Path. It's either it's either one or it's n. It's never yeah. any number in between. You just said five. I, I get five crosswalks. I get five mappings to regulatory requirements. No, why five? It's either uh, it's, one or it's n. It's like uh, it's like some bad pricing discussion happened, you know, and it it, it and they never revisited it or something, you know. Um, you know, personally, we want to be able to offer it as functionality, and it could be limitless. I mean, if you're a crosswalking maniac, you could, you know, you could go haywire on it. Actually, exactly. Lee, did I well, hear uh, something in there? Yeah. So was yeah, I, I was wondering, um, the uh, you know, when when it comes to control automation, there's you know that the the what the holy grail is everything is automated, but the reality is we have administrative and technical controls, and I'm wondering, do people still understand that they're going to have to do some, you know, non-technical checks to populate data, whether it's yeah. uploading copies of policy to not match policy controls or, yeah. you know. That's almost like a litmus test. I I know exactly what you're talking. That's almost like a litmus test for whether or not anyone's ever looked at a control, right? So, you know, when you get onto calls and people are like, we're, you know, our goal is to automate 90% of these. I'm like, have you read them? (laughs) I mean, you know, uh, you might want to read them because a lot of them say the organization does this, decides on, you know, a course of action or a set of procedures. I don't think you're going to be automating that anytime soon unless you have, you know, HAL in 2001. Um, So, I, you know, I, the way I see it is, you know, in all the research and development we've been engaged in, and this is with some very large concerns, you know, you automate the things you can automate, right? So, you, you know, you might be auto, you can automate some access control stuff, some identity and access management, some vulnerability scanning, uh, you know, a, a lot of those control system and information integrity. 
system and communications protection, some of the more technical controls. But I, I think, you know, if you look across frameworks, you can get coverage, uh, you know, anywhere from 30 to 40 percent, which, you know, is a lot. And those controls are historically difficult. They tend to be sticking points in organizations because someone in compliance or risk might have to call IT and that that takes a lot of time. So if you're lighting those controls up uh, in an automated way, uh, you know, you're, 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 you're making life easier for IT, you're making life easier for compliance and risk as well. And I don't yeah, think little, the PE controls about, about water shutoff for a fire no, are really going to be automatable. No. <laughs> no, no, fire prevention, water shutoff, hiding the cables, uh, all of the PE controls, you know, a lot of the maintenance controls, you know, the personnel controls, like, you know, what are you going to do when you have visitors at a facility? Uh, you, I don't think you're going to be automating that either anytime soon. Mm -hmm. he, ahead, here's man. why this context is important, because I made an assumption back in 2004 mm -hmm. that 80% of the controls were manual-based controls, 20% were technical, the mm -hmm. typical 80-20 rule. Sure. And so we designed software and we designed an architecture to manage collecting those manual controls, reporting against them and rolling them up. Right. Here's the mistake we made. Those 20% controls have huge numbers associated to them. And this is where the automation challenge, I think, really came to a head was mm -hmm. when I took those 20% of controls, but I applied them to tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of systems, mm -hmm. I didn't have the ability to automate that. Right. Because when I think about process procedure controls, even the human controls, mm -hmm. maybe I can get away with assessing them once a year to make sure my policies and stuff are up to date on my process documents are good, maybe quarterly, whatever. Sure. But here's where the real risk comes into play. It's yeah. as the threat landscape is changing and new yeah. vulnerabilities are being discovered that my risk profile changes really, really fast. And if I'm doing that manually, I miss the window. You missed it completely. And I mean, that's when we talk to organizations, that's they're beginning to realize that we used to say it exactly as you just did, which is, you know, how can you justify, uh, you know, risk decisions based on data that's, you know, six months old, nine months old, 300 and, you know, 50 something days old. You, you can't. And it's crazy. It's just crazy. Uh, so, you know. If you do get some of your vulnerability scanning, some of your, you know, you know, your configuration checks. Uh, some of those things automated, uh, your data is much fresher. Your, you know, if it's and if it's rolling up the risk, if if you're rolling it through the controls and you're doing it across applications, and it is bubbling up to risk, um, you're making decisions that are informed, uh, you know, on, on data that's refreshing on a, you know, on a healthy cadence. Not, you know, you're not looking through spreadsheets that were done six months ago by a consultancy or whatever, and and trying to justify that to your boss. Uh, so that's, I think. Really, the one of the ultimate cases for automation is that you know you can't make credible decisions with respect to risk, particularly in the landscape we're in now. You know, with with the morphing ransomware risks and phishing risks all the time, they're changing. Uh, you can't make these decisions uh, without fresh data. Yeah, and it's not only system data. I I, I spent a lot of time in third party risk too. Think about the supply chain risk. How do I start to understand? The, the potential risk profile of all these vendors or all these supply chain areas, if I don't have some sort of refresh data on a regular basis, because again, we see those attacks coming. So it's not just IT system data, it's any third party or supply chain relationship that also needs that fresh data. Absolutely. 
I, you know, and, 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 and some of that, the complexity of that is, is, you know, mind bending in some ways, some of the dependencies and, you know, some of the software vulnerabilities we've seen of late. So again, you know, it, it's, it, it, everybody realizes that this needs to happen. It's, you know, there, there are a few sticking points though, you know, an established practice within organizations and some of the legacy practices uh, militate somewhat against uh, adopting the new approach. Uh, so it's a constant conversation and, you know, we, we, we're automating everywhere we can and doing it as quickly as, as we can, but uh, getting organizations, you know, uh, to, to adopt rapidly is a challenge. Yeah. A Adrian, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say prepping for audits is huge. You know, like, like, especially if you work for, you know, a FinTech or something like that, the amount of time you can spend just gathering evidence for auditors as they request it is huge. And I remember back when cloud first started to come out and, you know, some of these tools that would do the compliance work for you. You know, when we first started uh, moving, you know, evolving from spreadsheets to actual applications, mm -hmm. um, yeah, the idea of, of just collecting that evidence and keeping it fresh uh, automatically so that when the auditor comes in, you know, you just give them their auditor account into the system or, or right. access to that folder where it's all been collected and, and you get, you know, days, weeks in your life back. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Evidentiary uh, management is so tricky and you know, uh, it's actually for us an aspect of crosswalking too, because sometimes the auditors will want to see how you're doing on a, on another standard that you're not terribly familiar with and, or don't do day-to-day -day work in it. And if you have the evidence associated with one of your, you know, test once use many type frameworks like 853, you're able to now in system have that evidentiary association uh, port over to the other controls, and uh, that that can give you back weeks. I mean, there's all sorts of cases where you know giving back folks weeks of their life is what we are trying to do. You know, like um, RFPs come in, for example, and you know you might have a whole storehouse of answers that you've built up over the years, but then they give you a different set of questions. Well, what do you do there? Right, you're going to lose two weeks going from your baseline knowledge and answers over into the new question set. And that's the, you know, those types of, you know, uh, uh, practices are, they drive people crazy. I mean, I've had to fill out RFPs, mm -hmm. you know, it's. Yeah, it's, SIG, SIG light and everyone yeah. is different and the oh questions are in a yeah. different order. Yeah. yeah. And, and how do you uh, map just all that? Just, yeah, it's just, and then you wind up, you know, you get stuck doing it on a weekend or something too, you know, and you're yeah. like, oh God, I can't believe this. But Coffee again, with crosswalking, with crosswalking, we just pass the new questions to a processor, right? And, and relate it to the answers you already have. So, you know, you know, 85 or 80% 80 of the work has been done. Uh, you might have a QA step in there, but you've, you've saved um, a major amount of time. Now, a question there, how much of that is automated? Like, like are you using NLP or something like that? Because yeah, no. maybe the yeah. questions don't match exactly, you know? They don't match exactly. Yeah, we're using NLP. So I, I hired a couple of folks uh, a couple of years ago because I, you know, I'd begun to experiment with NLP around, uh, you know, controls. Because part of automating controls, you, you might have to take scan data, right? Scan data has findings, right? And, and you can say, oh, RA5 is, is green because they're, they're doing vulnerability scanning. RA51 is green or, you know, halfway to green or, 
yellow. You can do all that, you know, with just the idea that you're doing vulnerability scanning, but you can't reach into the findings of the vuln scans and suggest controls, you know. So we built some NLP out around, you know, uh, what does it mean when you see, you know, there's an XSS, you know, an XS. Uh, S vulnerability, or you've got a SQL injection vulnerability, oops, you know, SI10, SI10.5 lights up. So that initial foray into NLP around controls and, and uh, vulnerability data brought us to the crosswalking problem. And uh, a researcher that I have on staff out of uh, Rensselaer, he built, uh, you know, a multi-stage algorithm uh, with NLP to do the crosswalking. And we've been QAing it for uh, you know, the last two or three months, and uh, we're building out the UI. So the UI uh, is quite, the build is quite involved around the UI because you have different kinds of frameworks. You might have frameworks that are just blobs of text, mapped to blobs of text. You might have frameworks that are broken into individual control actions, right? And those are different kinds of crosswalks. So there's a fair amount of, um, you know, UI work that has to be done. And because we're in regulatory regimes, we have to have that QA step for due care, you know, for legal reasons. Um, so uh, we're very excited though, because we have automated uh, control crosswalking now and, and it can be done live and in real time. So I had a question on that. One, one of the things I spent a bunch of time in college on was natural language processing, which was fairly immature. And are there decent tools or you have to write this from scratch that you can build on for, you know? There's a lot, it's like standing on the shoulders of uh, those who come for uh, a lot of the a lot of the behemoths uh, like uh, Google have done some very good work in NLP and made some of it uh, publicly available. Uh, so there are a lot of tools publicly available uh, to do some training. Um, that said, you still have to build the algorithm itself, and you still have to collect all the security language, right? So. You, yeah. In order to build a really robust uh, NLP around security language, you've got to have a vast compendium of security language uh, and, and, and train it um, many different ways. So there's a lot of different layers to the NLP, um, and there are a lot of different models, and, and, and it's sort of a hybrid approach so that you, know, you get the best of one kind of model and the best of another kind of model as well. Interesting. So let's talk about best practice, right? Because this is not, you just don't flip a switch and turn this thing on, right? There's a lot of work that goes under the covers here in order to get this into an, in, uh, an alignment where, where it can be effective. So Patrick, where, where do you start? Do you start on the framework crosswalk side and then go to the asset side and then kind of marry them together? Do you start at the asset side and go over to the control and roll up side? Where do you start? What the, like, what's the best approach here? Well, we start wherever the, uh, the enterprise companies and even just the commercial companies that come to us, uh, we start wherever they want to start because we're integrated risk management. And, and that's, you know, that's the best part of being integrated risk management. If they want to start at risk, we can start at risk. If they want to start at the level of the controls, they can start there. If they want to start with central visibility or making sure they're all on one standard across the organization, we can start there as well. Um, we really do have to work with uh, our partners on that very closely. I, I wish I could say there's a best way to do it, right? But each organization has its own culture to some extent. And there's way more similarities than you'd think. You know, uh, they, they are all trying to do the same thing. They're all trying to understand their cyber risk. 
They're all trying to, uh, you know, deal with supply chain risk, and they're all trying to roll that up in a way uh, to the to the to the board across assets, across business units, across really complex structures, and then have a case to make to the business side around dollars and 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 probabilities, you know, and they want it to be credible. So they're all they all want the same result, but sometimes they're starting with different frameworks. They're starting with different teams. Uh, they're starting with different legacy practices. Sometimes they'll have five, 10 business units, and each business unit has its own unique way of working, right? And what we have to do is sort of be open to uh, adjusting a little bit here on a score model, maybe, or looking at how they've run this in Excel for a while and getting some buy-in around, well, we can support most of what you're doing in system uh, and then build it out over time, the rest of it. So I, I would just say that, you know, you can get on uh, the elevator at any floor, uh, but you're, we're all going hopefully to the to the top where there's uh, a good meal and we spin around and get to look at the city, you know. Yeah, as long as you don't have a thunderstorm and it stops spinning <laughs> like it did two years ago in Vegas. That's dangerous. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I was there for that. So I, I had, a, had a question. You talk about preparing information for senior management. Are we still... Let's give senior management access to the dashboard, or do we let them drill down anymore? Well, we've uh, we've had to to build roles that allow senior management, if they want to, to come in and look. Uh, you know, we have an observer role, uh, which allows for access to onto what we call our governance dashboards, which are really all of the dashboards that leverage the tagging inside the system to look at bigger things like business units and states and, you know, sectors and supply chain. So it's, it's all aggregated, you know, you're out of the controls, you're, you're out of the individual assessments and all the data has been rolled up to the, the, the functional levels that executives want to look at. So we we're all for giving them access. We're all for giving them access into it. We've built a lot of functionality around that. We've built, security return on investment functionality as well, uh, so that you can game out some scenarios around remediations. And uh, we continue to hear requirements from organizations around uh, wanting more functionality concerning uh, making the case upstairs. Yeah, I yeah, just I was thinking you don't want to, go ahead, Matt, go ahead. No, 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 I was just, uh, finish, Lee, please. Okay. Cool. I just was wondering because I was thinking we don't want, you know, very senior management looking to how much of, you know, MSO 814 or whatever it was, was where you want to look at a bigger level for them. Oh, yeah. Well, that's why we built the governance dashboards. It was one of the one of the biggest energy companies in the world who two years ago, uh, you know, sort of pointed us in that direction. And um, you, you don't go from the you can drill down to maybe the category of data, but you don't then go down under the individual uh, implementations from there. Yeah. I mean, the real value in the dashboards, ultimately, if you do this right, is you understand wh where the biggest risk areas are that are going to impact the business, not MSO 8067, no. where they are, right? Because that, that's just this, the executive team doesn't need to know that, but they do need to know has it changed the risk profile of a part of the business that could impact operations or reputation or other business risk areas? Yes, absolutely. And um, that's that's our real preoccupation on the risk register and the governance dashboards to present that case so that they can understand it. You know, if they want to understand it geographically, they can, the risks. 
If they want to understand it uh, by business unit, they can. If they want to understand it by application type, if they want to understand it by, you know, uh, by individual risk, you know, if they want a broad aggregate look into ransomware risk across many systems, they can have that view too. So, um, no, you don't want to get too carried away with the control talk. They, they, they generally don't want to talk about, you know, AC2.G uh you know uh the the you know the the fourth or fifth or sixth item and a you know a 15 line item control um but they do want to see where they are on access control and they do want to understand you know do we need uh to make sure that 2fa is on uh, all remote desktop protocol or you know like we see recently you know they do want to understand that what would it cost to do that are we seeing certain trends with all the ransomware activity going on that are like areas that people should really focus on. Have, have you seen based on your customer set, like, like these are the handful of things. If, if you had your arms around them, you'd be in a better position. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I talk about that all the time with, um, you know, with the press or, or, or even with the customers, you know, like what, what, or even in a patent I'm writing now, it's like the, one of the central cases of it. Uh, you know, what, what's the difference between, uh, you know, a pipeline a concern with respect to ransomware? What's the difference, you know, if you look at a munis municipality or a water treatment plant? You know, what, you know, and, and CISA has put out a great deal of guidance around that. But ultimately in system, in our software, uh, that relates to, you know, well, which controls uh, are most cost effective for, you know, on your particular sector? You know, what, what should you be looking at? And we can see, you know, some pretty clear patterns around that. Um, you know, there are certain sectors that aren't really that worried about ransomware, but that's because, you know, they segment their networks. They've got 2FA on everything. They, they, they tend to do best practice. And then there's other sectors that, you know, have some serious vulnerabilities. And uh, third-party software is a scary one um, for, for a lot of them. And I would say there's a lot of talk about about that, about what what a security group, what a good security group or selection of mitigations or controls looks like uh, with respect to a particular risk like ransomware. Well, you just mentioned two right off the top of my head, network segmentation and MFA. I'm sure there's a few more, but if I can segment the network and stop the spread, that helps, right? And if oh, yeah. I've got two factor on, that prevents things like uh, the water one, where where you know they came in remotely and, and got access to the plant. No damage in that one, but still, no. multi-factor authentication is important in that kind of scenario. Absolutely, and and not too terrible, not too prohibitive to to put in place, right? I mean, so there's you know there's uh, there's a component of security return on investment as well. You know, making the case. That we do the things that uh, are are there, and and you get the biggest bang for the buck. Absolutely, Adrian Lee. Any additional questions for Patrick while we have him? No, I'm great. Thank you. Yeah, no, I think I think it was a good conversation. Anything else I would ask? I we'd need at least ten or fifteen more minutes. It'd go down a rabbit hole. <laughs> it's a good topic. That's all right. I I like rabbit holes, Patrick. Thank you so much for joining <laughs> us on Business Security Weekly. Thanks, everyone. Have a great rest of the day. To learn more about how to align your cyber risk to business risk through automation, please visit securityweekly.com forward slash cybersaint. We're going to take a quick break and then cover the leadership and communications articles for this week. 
cyber risk and compliance automation is finally here. Legacy GRC systems cannot support the powerful, real-time automation and oversight that organizations require to take risks that matter to succeed. CyberSync continuous control automation ingests data from the IT GRC stack to update controls against regulatory requirements and risks in real time, delivering insights and visibility. See how members of the Fortune 500 are saving millions annually by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash CyberSync. Cybercriminals are using social engineering, loaded with urgency and fear, to successfully prey on victims, your employees, or your customers. Protect your Office 365 email from today's most sophisticated attacks with Barracuda Email Threat Scanner. It's a free tool to help protect your business from these hard-to-detect attacks. The Barracuda Email Threat Scanner uses artificial intelligence to hunt and eliminate Office 365 email threats. Find the cybersecurity threats hiding in your Office 365 email right now. Get your free email threat scan at securityweekly.com forward slash Barracuda. Welcome back to Business Security Weekly. I am your host, Matt Alderman, joined by Adrian Sanabria and Lee Neely. Security Weekly is proud to announce that we will be at InfoSec World 2021 in person, October 25th to 27th, 2021. This year, our annual partnership is a little extra special as we're both business units under Cyber Risk Alliance. It's also my birthday, so come on down and celebrate. What does that mean for Security Weekly listeners and InfoSec World attendees? You'll get to see and hear from many of the Security Weekly team at the event, and you will also save 20% off your World Pass. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash ISW2021 to register using our discount code. In our July 22nd technical training at 11 a.m. Eastern, learn how guided SaaS NDR enables rapid response. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash webcast to register now. If you've missed any of our previously recorded webcasts or technical trainings, they are available at securityweekly.com forward slash on demand. Gentlemen, articles for this week. Now, I had to try to tie them into the previous segment, right? So let's start at the C-suite because how important is it to understand cybersecurity? So this first article pulls out the things CEOs should know about cybersecurity. And number one was understanding that cybersecurity is important for business. What? It's not a cost center? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, um, yeah, this is just lovely because it's, and I think it's lo- less important for them to understand cybersecurity uh, on like a deep level or anything like that. A lot of it has to do with their attitude towards it, you yes. know, and setting a, a good example for the company, you know, and and you know, actually taking steps to, you know, to to make, you know, substantial changes, you know, not not just, uh, uh, you know, talking about it. We take your security very seriously. We do. Yes, Lee, it's not just a cost center. It's also not just the responsibility of the IT team, which is also one of those other kind of um, misnomers that... that or or the know, intern. Some... No, <laughs> yeah. never the intern. Never the intern. But I mean, it does lay out some very interesting aspects, you, you know, around working with 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 security and IT on policies and procedures, you know, building a culture of security. Um, There's a lot of good lessons learned in here because look, executives are busy. They have their day job. They're running a business. They, they usually have a board of directors, shareholders. There's a lot going on And, and cybersecurity is one aspect of business risk. 
But it is an important one, especially these days when we see all these ransomware attacks and, and we see all this activity in the news. You just you do not want to be the front headline uh, in the in the in the morning paper. Yeah, there's there's actually something the CEO could do that might be hard for his CISO to do, and that is CEOs often have a network of peers, whether they're competing or not, but that they're out there with. And we often say to the, to the cyber folks, look at what your peers are doing. But if they don't have an inroad to their peers, that CEO could hook them up and that could really work. Yeah. Much, maybe much easier for them to make that connection than say that the CISO to do it. Yeah. Well, a very, they're also a target, right? Mm -hmm. Like CEOs tend to be a bigger target than, you know, C-level folks in general, but especially the CEO. You know, so it's another excuse for them to, you know, to learn a little bit more about cybersecurity. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, this next one goes into a similar discussion uh, about uh, to prevent future attacks, C-suite should learn cybersecurity. Well, yeah, okay, we're there. Uh, uh, there was a line in here that I thought was very interesting. I got I to gotta make sure I can find it again. Um, it, it talks about, you know, not understanding necessarily the vulnerabilities, but, oh, scary Russian cyber buffer overflow, SQL injection, nobody cares. Nobody in the boardroom gives a rat's ass about that stuff. I just thought it was a great line because sometimes that's the way it's perceived, right? Is that you've got this really deep, intense cybersecurity discussion going no, that's not what they care about. It's it's about business risk. It's not about you know this this the latest vulnerability in in what it's called. No one. That's it. All right, next one. You guys are fun today. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I was looking for that line that that you were just quoting. Yeah, me there. too. That's I was delving into the article line. looking for the line. <laughs> And also, I was trying to figure out if this was the if this is a different Scripps or the Scripps that was headquartered here in Knoxville. I don't know. It's Scripps Health. No, never mind. It's Scripps yep. Health. Yeah, in California. Not, yeah, it, it, not, it not, does, not Discovery Channel. Right. It does go through uh, a great discussion about that healthcare hack. I did not touch on that those aspects of the article, uh, but I think it is a good a learning a lessons learned because. One of the things that he said, they say in that article was, to this day, Scripps never has told people what additional investments they made to prevent the next data breach. It just, it, it, they've never said it publicly. Um, and, and so it talks about the whole aspect of the breach and all the changes and, uh, you know, different executives that came in, but no one's ever addressed the holistic discussion about, well, what changes did they make? Did they... Did they make the appropriate changes to present, prevent it in the future, which is the basis for the article of why this should be part of the C-suite conversation and not, not a separate item? And, and I think a lot of that is on the CISO, though. You know, like, like uh, a lot of the chatter I see between CISOs are, are them trading techniques for, you know, getting the attention of the C-suite and, and getting them engaged uh, and reporting the right things up to them. You know, because if you report the wrong things up to them, you know, you start sounding like, like, you know, Charlie Brown's teacher after a while. And uh, you, you got to be, you only have limited time with them often, especially if you're not uh, an actual C-suite CISO. You know, if you've got several uh, steps between you and the, and the actual C-suite, you know, you got to use that time wisely. You know, oftentimes it's, you know, maybe 15 minutes out of a quarter and uh, it's a couple PowerPoint slides or something like that. How are you going to use that, that time? 
This next article talks about the relationship of this. I like this one because it, it has an overlap with the CISO and the CIO here. And it's really about still driving innovation with operational excellence. And we've talked about this at various times with Jason. Uh, there's some really interesting tips in here. And the first one is invest once to solve multiple challenges, right? Don't think about cybersecurity and or systems in general as a bunch of little point solutions, right? If you make the right investments once and you can solve multiple challenges, now you start to get scale out of your operational environment while you're innovating. And I think sometimes we think about these things in silos and we're making little investments as point solutions, not thinking about how they solve other challenges for the organization. That's how you can balance some of these aspects. 100%. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, it's one of the biggest mistakes I see in organizations is, is you know, security operations. What it actually looks like is I'm going to hire a guy to take care of the SIM and I'm going to hire you know, this lady to take care of the, the WAF, you know, and that, that's the extent of their job. They come to work, they log into that one system, they maintain it, you know, they look at alerts and stuff like that, you know, maybe collaborate a bit with, with some other folks, but that's, that's not actually doing security. You know, like you gotta have that bigger picture in mind, you know, why do I have a SIM? You know, how does that fit into operational processes? You know, how can we make these processes more efficient and, you know, surface more useful, actionable threats? Stuff like that. And that was the second point. Embrace automation around targeted processes. Now, notice it said yeah. targeted processes. Just notice it said processes. In order to automate something, you have to start somewhere, right? We were just having this co conversation with Patrick on the automation aspects of risk and compliance. You've got to have those processes nailed down before you can automate them. Because what are you automating otherwise? Automation for the sake of automation doesn't help if you're not streamlining your existing processes and making them more efficient. Yeah, I mean, here's a challenge. Write down your processes in in easily understandable languages without using the names of your vendors, you know, or the buzzwords associated with the tools. You know, yeah. is that possible? Can you take that vendor name out? Can you swap it with a with another vendor name? You know, it'll show you how strong those processes are or how well defined they are. And then yes. Can you take that and can you loop it back to how you're making the business successful? Yeah, it should be tied back. If, if there isn't a tie, yeah. you're, you're not doing it right. That comes back to my, Matt's earlier point. Um, and I was even thinking, uh, you talk about building relationships. That person you hired to sit and take care of the sim may not be the person you're out having build relationships. Uh, they may not be suited for it. So make sure you've got that covered somewhere. Absolutely. Uh, that ties in this whole relationship concept into our, our next article on the evolving CISO. We've seen a lot of articles over the past few months on the evolving role of the CISO. Uh, you know, I made some pretty bold statements a few years ago about what the CISO role would look like. I wasn't too far off, but, you know, anyways, this article talks about some of those top qualities in a CISO. Now, number two is relationship builder to, to Lee's point, right? From the earlier conversation, you know, the ability to build a relationship. The in, the first one I thought was a little interesting, matchmakers, um, which you don't think about CISOs being matchmakers per se. You always think about relationship building, but I don't necessarily think of a CISO as a, as a matchmaker. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, you know, it is, 
you know, and I, I remember uh, listening to Scott Galloway's uh, podcast and, and uh, he's got a like listener question bag stuff that comes in. And one of them was, you know, how do you find good people? Like we're really struggling, you know, to hire good people. And, um, you know, the answer I heard from, from Scott and, and that I always hear from people is it's all about your network. It's all about who you know. So, you know, I, I absolutely, I, th- I think that's an important skill, you know, if you're in any kind of position where you've got to uh, acquire and retain talent or, or help others do the same. Yeah, I mean, I, I, our networks help us do that. Uh, I think relationship building is important because you got to underst- you got to work across the different business lines. You've got to make sure that uh, you understand their risks, some of their objectives and goals, and and make sure you can deliver on that. Uh, the servant leadership here, right? Set the strategy, manage at the high level, let your team do the work, right? And become an advocate for your team for sure. Yeah. Um, I just the matchmaker one just kind of threw me off there a little bit. The, the one thing I <laughs> yeah. didn't see that I was halfway expecting was the term trust build or, well, I guess it's relationships, but I just think about how many times I've talked to folks out in the programs. They want to do something sounds crazily insecure, but when you find out what the problem is they're solving and why it's important, then you can sit there and, and start digging down and finding the ways to do it securely. But if you don't, have if they don't have the trust to come to you with when they want to do something, you know, you start branching into shadow solutions, shadow IT, whatever you want to call it, where you're being worked around and you really want to avoid that. Yeah. I've got an awesome interview coming up in a few weeks with Jim Ralph. I've known Jim for years. He was a big advocate uh, when I was at Archer and, and the Archer community. And I'm bringing him on in a few weeks. We're going to talk about the top three mistakes that CISOs make that aren't published in any of these articles. Um, and it, it, it'll cross over into a couple of these little areas. But when I had the prep call with him, I was just so intrigued by the fact that he said, look, these are the top three mistakes every first time CISO makes. And no one's ever like published them or put them in an article. So we're going to cover them because mm-hmm. we look at these characteristics, which are great. But what are the things you should avoid? Or what are those mistakes you should avoid? Uh, just because you have the qualities doesn't mean you're going to do it correctly. I, that just... That's an interesting one coming up in the near future. I good foreshadowing. I'm I'm really excited for that one. You know, especially uh, you know saying that they're they're not often talked about. I'm very very curious now. Yeah, we cover a lot of like these are the characteristics CISOs have, et cetera, et cetera. This is the evolving role of the CISO. But how many people have said, look, if you're going to be a CISO, these are the first. These are the three things you just need to avoid. And we're going to do that uh, in a few weeks. I think it's August 9th. Anyways, stay tuned. CISO screw-ups is a book I would read. <laughs> <laughs> he's retired now, so he might have time to actually write the book. But he's going to come yeah. on the podcast and talk about it. Uh, let's see. This next one. The six common mistakes, uh, resume mistakes for CISOs. Uh, again, if you're out looking to get your first CISO job or your next CISO job, this article will talk about some of the things um, that you should make sure you include in your resume because these are things that a lot of CISOs uh, don't include. Uh, The first one is failing to show your executive abilities. I I think we all kind of know that the CISO role has has been moving into more of an executive role. So talk about some of your executive achievements. And that means things like you know, helping deliver on revenue or profitability or some other things. Those are kind of executive level um, uh, aspects. 
the the one that really there's one in here that just really surprised me leaving out experience with breaches and hacks now mm-hmm. some CISOs may think that that's a turnoff and that if you have experience with a breach or a hack therefore maybe you weren't a very good CISO but look there's a <laughs> lot of organizations that struggle with incident response and dealing with breaches and hacks why not talk yeah. about your experience if you have it Think think mm-hmm. about that for how insane that sounds for just a second. Like breaches and hacks are very common, and you want to hire somebody with zero experience in that area? Like really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like and and what are the chances it's it was the CISO's fault? Like it was probably an intern, you know, chose a bad password. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine a CISO with no incident res- response experience? That would be crazy. Right? Yeah, and but. But yeah, it, it's it's so much this like it, it's not like you got a, arrested or something like that. It's not like uh, you were drunk on the job. Like, you know, I think it's happened to enough companies at this point. You know that uh, you would much rather have somebody very familiar with the process and the ins and outs and, and the, you know, you don't want somebody figuring out the wrong thing to do on day one uh, of reporting a breach uh, with you. You know, I would much rather have somebody with experience that knows exactly what to do and what not to do on day one or hour one of a breach. Hour one. Yeah. Minute one almost. Right. I mean, what what are the first set of things you do? Right. I'm I'm, I'm sure there's a to do list, you know, a lot of to do list for that first day. (laughs) Right. Like there's a lot that has to happen there. Uh, The thing that got me here is. You know, how often are CISOs still using resumes? You know, I would think that's that's a field that's that's mostly networks, executive headhunting, uh, stuff like that. Like, uh, you know, I, I I wonder how many CISOs are actually updating their resumes or, or getting that job more through people that they know. And, yeah, maybe HR needs a resume to have on file or something like that. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that, that struck me as a bit strange you know I'm, I'm not sure how many CISOs are actively updating their resumes and that's how they're getting the job it's probably not as much active CISOs necessarily as maybe it is people wanting to become that kind of first time CISO maybe. you know you're you're a VP and and you want to get the CISO title but you know you got to go through the, the the process and you need the resume and you're out hunting maybe um, but I, to your point, right? I mean, connections in the network is, is a lot of the way I think this stuff happens, but if you're going to write a resume, let's just make sure it's formatted correctly. No misspellings grammatically correct. Oh, yeah. Cause that was the sixth one on the item. You're like, wait, at this oh, level, that, did, did, that is this me. still going on? Yeah. Yeah. You know, actually I tell everybody if they're submitting whatever it is, CV resume or whatever, make, have somebody look at it, pay somebody to get it, not be, you know, badly formatted that it actually reads when somebody else reads it. Um, there are so many simple resources for, for yeah. resume assistance. Uh, there's no excuse for that. Like our, our local uh, community uh, Slack channel here in, in East Tennessee, uh, we've, we've got a dedicated channel just for resume help and resume reviews. That's awesome. And I'm sure we're not the only one. Right. Yeah. Use your network to review your resume. Yeah. Just saying. Uh, our, our last article. If you do 
get past the resume process and you get to the actual interview, here are some tips for you in that interview process. Now, this comes from Science of People, uh, Vanessa Van Edwards. We had her on, oh my gosh, it's probably been a year and a half ago now. She's a body language expert. It was a fantastic interview. Paul and I, I think we're the only two that, that had the opportunity to interview with her, but she talked a lot about body language and stuff. This article talks about some of those interview things you should do to give yourself a better opportunity uh, to get the position. And there's some interesting tips in here for people who are you know, going through the interview process or um, are out interviewing for jobs. Uh, a couple of the ones, uh, number one, don't self-touch. I thought that was interesting. You know, don't touch your face and, you know, fiddling with yourself. Chew, chew on your fingernails. You, like I'm, I'm always messing with my, my beard or mustache. I'm, I'm sure the, sure the folks in, uh, on the production side there, jo- Johnny, see me doing that all the time when I'm off camera. Cause I'm conscious enough about it that I don't do it while I'm on camera. Right. Uh, relax your hands on the table. Don't be clutched, you know, clenched hands, kind of relax, put your hands on the table. Look like you're in control. Look like you're, you should be there. Don't look nervous. Right. I mean, that, that's a telltale sign is when you got your hands clenched. Uh, it gives you some really interesting advice on dress and attire. Um, only walk in with a single bag. Ladies, uh, a larger purse. Men, a, a slim briefcase. Don't come in with a lot of clutter. I thought was interesting. Make sure you're wearing clothes that fit don't perfectly. Don't bring a bunch of baggage. <laughs> right? Yeah, don't bring a bunch of baggage. A little bit of a me- metaphorical uh, thing there for a job <laughs> interview also. <laughs> I-, I thought tip number five was interesting. Don't forget the back of your shoes. Because when you walk out of the interview, people are looking at, yeah. at the back of you. Um it goes into a, a little more, but think about this for a minute, men. Sometimes the back of your soles get scuffed because of, you know, sitting in the car, doing whatever. Like, just just make sure you're tidy all the way around because people will see you walk out of the room, unless you're on Zoom, but if you're in person, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you know, a little story about this. I, I remember I was hiring, um, you know, there are two kind of lead candidates uh, in this job search, and... Uh, and and one of the guys had whole body covered in tattoos, like like you could even see like when his head was shaved, like his his whole scalp was tattooed, you know, tattoos on on hands, knuckles, stuff like that. A lot more common now, but this this would have been two thousand two, two thousand three, something like that. And uh, and the other candidate showed up in a suit, literally still had the tags on the suit. You know, he he had his uh, like some certification pins in it and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, clothes, you know, you know, didn't fit him perfectly. Like if you're going to return the suit later, at least get the right size. Um, you know, and, and, and it just extended to his, his manner as well. Like, like he, he'd interrupt me to correct me on things when I was asking him questions. Uh, you know, just, just so many red flags and, and it was so, he would have been really easy to get hired. And, and it took me weeks of fighting, you know, to get the guy with the tattoos hired because, management just couldn't get past how he looked and uh and he, he's still there yeah he's, he's still he's still working there <laughs> yeah, that's great well yeah. it, it, so, it's really it's really about marketing yourself the entire package not just yeah not just what's on that paper or how you answer the questions it's 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 the rest of the it's the rest of the deal as well exactly yeah right. And these are the easy things these are the things like you've got all the time to prepare like you shouldn't get any of this wrong um, 
except maybe some of the ones that are more unconscious. You might have to practice that, you know, but, but there's a lot of, you could do a whole separate uh, article just about, you know, mannerisms, you know, how, how you talk, how you interact. And, and some of that's here. Um, but yeah, bo- body language is huge. I, I think a lot of people don't fully uh, or consciously uh, understand how important it is. You know, there, there's a lot of that, oh, well, my gut says, you know, and, and, and what that is, is like a compilation of a bunch of uh, things that you didn't consciously register, but you subconsciously registered, you know, guy was sloppy, you know, maybe interrupted a lot, you know, may, maybe ignored certain people uh, in, in the interview that they didn't uh, connect with. And uh, there, there's a great book by Joe Navarro called What Everybody What Everybody Is Saying. You know, it's about micro expressions and and uh, and body language. That's that's super interesting. Uh, he he's since come out like his his big shtick now is is uh, poker. You know, like using that knowledge to help poker players. But uh, but that's kind of the original book he came out with, uh, and it, it, it's really useful. Yeah, if you're going into a whole a high profile interview, just be prepared, right? Y- you know, it, it, you got to be in the right mental state to go in and, and nail one of those interviews, right? It, it, it's a high stakes kind of interview. And these are just some tips and some guides on, on how to help. Uh, it's just, we haven't covered one of our articles for a while. And I was like, oh, this is a great way to yeah. kind of end the session today. <laughs> Talk about body language, you, you know, because as we're getting back to normal to an extent, right? People are hiring, people are going back to in-person interviews. Don't forget, you can't just walk around in your underpants all day with a shirt on and get away in a Zoom call. <laughs> yeah. I, I love number 11. Which oh, one was 11? Uh, don't sweat like Nixon. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, he had the flu, you know, and, and like I have seen people come in for interviews that are clearly sick, you know, coughing and sneezing all over the place. Reschedule your interview. Don't come yeah. in like getting everybody else sick. You know, please hire me, you know, as you yeah, if knock you're out sick, the just entire have, department. Right. If you're sick, just have Lee Neely sit in for you. There you go. There you go. <laughs> I mean, I mean, nice. it shows you how you'll behave if you're sick with an Im- with a, with your future employer. I mean, it's people get sick; it happens. Right. Well, especially now, right? <laughs> because now in the environment yeah. that we're in, I mean, people would probably freak out if you you walked in sick. So, well, hopefully, Jason's feeling better today. Lee, thank you for filling in. Adrian, always a pleasure. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today, and we'll see you next week on Business Security Weekly. <laughs>